So then Jefferson becomes president. <laughs> and like, just note the like, Adams is president and then his arch rival vice president slash best friend. And I'll say right now, they, they then like continue to be friends like into their old age and they like write letters to each other and they end up both dying on the exact same day, July 4th, 1826, which if you do the math is exactly 50 years to the day from when they wrote the Declaration of Independence together. And John Adams's last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. But that wasn't true. Jefferson had died a few hours earlier, and his last words were, is it the fourth? But that's sort of flash forward. Now we're in the prime of their life. And Thomas Jefferson comes into office. He's super popular. He has like succeeded in taking out the first political group, basically Washington's crew, and now he's replacing it with his crew. And they're called Democratic Republicans. Um, and in his inauguration address, he tries to kind of pull the whole country together. And he says, we're all Federalists. We're all Republicans. We're all, you know, one country. Um, and to some extent, it works. He, he really does um, succeed in having a time period that's not as contentious. Um, and in part, what Jefferson had been all about always was being skeptical of the power of government, right? Hamilton, who is the intellectual leader of the Federalists, believes in a strong government that will um, shape the economic future of the country, that will make clear decisions and the people have to follow it. And Jefferson, who wasn't there, uh, unlike Adams and Washington and Madison and many of the other founding fathers, he was in France when they were writing the Constitution. And when they showed him the Constitution that they wrote, he was like, I think it's okay. Whereas all the rest of them had been like fighting to get this constitution passed. And that's like something that makes Jefferson like interesting and like a little bit dangerous. He suggested that all laws should have sunset provisions in them, meaning that at, after a certain number of years, they should just go away. And he even believed that about the constitution, which is like, whoa, like every few years we should try to figure all this out again. Um, and he also would say things like a little rebellion now and then is not a bad thing. Or like the tree of liberty should be renewed with blood every now and then. Like he seems, he's the guy who was in France, you know, right before the French Revolution. And then when the French Revolution started, he's like, well, maybe. And that makes him exciting and interesting and, and um, troubling. And of course, the other thing that you can't avoid with Thomas Jefferson is the fact that he owned slaves um, as many of these early founding fathers did. But he was known um, to be... He had many chances to free his slaves, and he didn't do it. Um, and, of course, he had children with Sally Hemings, uh, one of his slaves, and that means that his own children were his slaves. Um, and he writes very... He, his writing is very contradictory too. He writes about slavery and he says at some points he believes that black people are inherently inferior and that therefore slavery is justified through this sort of biological, almost like eugenics kind of argument. And he, some of the most racist writing of the founding fathers is like Jefferson in his book Notes on the State of Virginia. Um, but in this Notes on the State of Virginia, he also writes, I tremble when I think that God is just. And he basically 
admits only a few lines after saying that he thinks blacks are inferior. He admits that he knows that slavery is really wrong and that he thinks that our country may be punished for it, basically by God. And this is from a man who is not particularly religious. He's known as the founding father who is most you know, in favor of the separation of church and state. But it was like a deeper, more moral thing. And so he struggles his whole life, excuse me, with, um, he struggles his whole life with his own morality. And there's something very human about it. Like when I read him saying those things, it makes me think about how I think I should be a vegetarian and I'm not. And I know that the clothes that I wear are made in sweatshops around the world. And I can like intellectually talk about how awful that is. And yet I don't stop doing it. And Jefferson intellectually, I think, understood that slavery was a monstrous evil. And clearly he also personally understood it in some ways. I would love to know more about his relationship with, you know, the black woman who was basically his companion um, and the mother of some of his children. But he never actually stops. And when he dies, he does not free his slaves, which George Washington did. Um, and so that makes Jefferson feel compromised in many ways. And that's a lot of what we talk about when we talk about Jefferson. Why wouldn't he free them after he died? Well, he was very bad with money. And he actually died with a lot of debts uh, unpaid. He had an opportunity during the Revolutionary War. Um, I think it's Kosciuszko, who is a Polish... Um, nationalist who comes to the U.S. and tries to help with the revolution, he, this, I think it's Kosciuszko, sees Jefferson owning slaves and basically offers to buy his slaves out of freedom. He's like, I'll give you the money so that you don't have to do this anymore. And Jefferson refuses. And that was like his chance to do it without being in debt. But he didn't handle his money very well. And um, by the time he died, I don't think he felt he could afford to do it. Also, I don't know if, I, to some extent, the, the level that he was morally compromised, I wonder what kind of it would have meant for him to admit in dying that he should have done that before. Now, him being bad with money and supporting slavery are also part of the story of what he was like when he was president. Because he makes the worst economic decision that any president has ever made, I think, which is the Embargo Act. And basically, when the French and British, finally, Napoleon gets in power, and the French and British end up at war with each other. And remember, George Washington's like last message was, don't get involved, stay out of it. And so America has a really good fleet of merchant ships that are like trading and actually supplying both of these um, sides to some extent. They're like trading with France, they're trading with Britain, and they keep trying to say that they're being neutral. But there's a whole policy of British and French um, military vessels boarding ships that are going to help the other side and either taking them over or taking the stuff off of them because it's part of their way of preventing the other side from getting supplies. And Jefferson keeps trying to say, like, leave us alone. We're neutral. Just let us, like, if we have an American flag up, like, let us pass through. But Napoleon doesn't really listen to him and neither do the British. So then his strategy and his response to that is, okay, well, if you won't let us trade with anyone, then we'll just not trade with anyone ever. And he passes the, his Congress under the control of Democratic Republicans, passes the Embargo Act, which says basically the United States is now blocking our own trade. 
which it's like putting a gun to your own head because someone threatens to shoot you. Like it's a totally insane move. And some of it I think really does come out of the fact that Jefferson did not understand economics. He was a guy who had inherited slaves and who really believed in this kind of feudal economic order. He was very skeptical of cities. Jefferson is responsible for the Capitol being in Washington, D.C. And he did it because he believed that the Capitol being where it was under Washington in New York would bring it dangerously close to these money-grubbing finance people and immigrants and this like and factories and like all this stuff that he felt made people corrupt. And instead he said, let's bring it down to Virginia. Let's put it on a swamp where there's malaria. And he's like, if we do that, people will not want to live here in the summer. And then if they don't live here in the summer, they won't get to know each other as well and like become permanent. And then we won't have a permanent corrupt class of government. Now people didn't live in Washington DC permanently at the beginning, but eventually, of course, they do. And that's and I think it's pretty clear that the deal he made to get that wasn't worth it, right? It still Hamilton still succeeds in building a very, very powerful financial economic mechanism in part because of the compromise that brought the um, capital down there. Um, but it helps to understand Jefferson as this, like, to some extent, maybe the, well, I he's, he's the president who the most associated with this kind of, Let's stick with the land. He believed, he wrote a lot about the idea that small farmers who own their own land are the true moral compass of the United States. And that by having everyone be these small farms where they're independent from each other, where they don't have any banks involved, that we won't become corrupt. And I think in a modern world, I mean, by now we're getting the Industrial Revolution in Britain, that's just not going to work. And the Embargo Act is evidence of his just total misunderstanding of how that's supposed to work. He also did the Louisiana Purchase and bought this huge piece of land, and he bought it himself from Napoleon, and Napoleon really didn't own it by some measures. And the other question was, does the president by himself have the right to just buy big pieces of land? And there's some real constitutional questions about that. And it's especially interesting when Jefferson was the guy who for years was saying, keep government small, don't let the president be too powerful, let's criticize him. And then he gets into office and we see this again and again, you know, presidents who run for office saying, I think the president's too powerful. But when it's me, okay, and he decides to buy this huge piece of land. What a great deal though, you know? He buys it for I think what ends up being like three cents an acre or something. Um, of course, we can criticize whether you can actually buy like two white guys who've never been in that piece of land shaking hands and making a deal that takes the land from the people who are actually living there, Native Americans. Um, and he sends Lewis and Clark on a journey across uh, that land eventually to the Pacific. And of course, the other version of Jefferson is about this man who was very interested in science and very curious. He... Um, he wrote a lot about the natural world, and he truly, I think, sent Lewis and Clark on that adventure to find out stuff, you know, to learn about what that part of the country was going to be like. And I think Jefferson kind of wished he could have gone on that trip. They sent him back a lot of stuff, including like a prairie dog in a cage, and he kept it at Monticello. Um, 